What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to the Cutting Room, the official podcast at FilmmakerU.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this week we're going to be interviewing Alex Gaskillany, the colorist for Black Mirror. We're going to get into a lot of interesting sort of angles about color correcting for Black Mirror, and I think you're going to really enjoy this. I don't want to get too much into the details here, because I don't want to ruin what Alex has to say. Now, if you like these interviews, make sure to check out FilmmakerU.com for courses on filmmaking by the industry's best. You can use The Cutting Room, all one word, The Cutting Room, as your promo code to get 10% off. Now, with all that said, here's my interview with Alex. Now, I have to ask, because I was reading your bio and you, you said you sort of got into color correction when you were developing film, like actually hand processing film by the sounds mm-hmm. of it. Is that accurate? Yeah, so I studied graphic design at university and we did a lot of you know it was a lot of print design logos illustration but we did a we had a sort of black and white photography course for shooting on film and uh so we were you know developing with chemicals and you know in the dark room enlarging you know our pictures and kind of that's kind of where I started learning about apertures and exposures and how to really process film properly so I think that was that was quite a good grounding for me in the job I do now I mean everything we do now it's pretty much all digital uh <laughs> you know we <laughs> the odd film comes through the door but much less than at the start of my career but it was a, a great way just to start getting an understanding of light and contrast and just what was possible with film and how you could manipulate it after the fact you were just doing 35 millimeter stills you never went into like 16 mil black and white or uh it was mostly 35 mil stills yeah and then uh when i did my masters in film we were shooting 16 mil color film um and then that was getting processed at a lab in soho at the time so how did you make the transition from there into color correction that's a good question well because i think at various points in my life i've sort of I, I always knew I wanted to work in film in some way. You know, when I was a teenager, I I, I probably wanted to work more in sort of visual effects. You know, I, I love the work of ILM and the stuff they were doing, you know, with spacecrafts or or, or whatever it was, this, that, those, that sort of big visual effects work. Um, and then uh, I, I think at various points of Harvard desires to direct or be a DP. Um, but then I think when when I was doing my master's in shooting film, um, although I really enjoyed that process of capturing images on set, uh, and then we, you know, send it off to the lab and it would come back, and they'd do like a a one light transfer, um, and you you kind of find all the mistakes that you made on set, and then we bring it into the Avid, start editing, and it was really at that time I started finding that you could do a lot in post-production in terms of colour. And, you know, when I was making short films and you have, you know, kind of aspirations of making everything look like, uh, you know, Amelie or something like that, and you kind of want that kind of those gold tones and things and maybe not getting that quite right on the day. And then it was, you know, you find out, oh, you can, you know, you can make changes further down the line. And I think I found an affinity with that, um, you know, in my 
graphic design days, I'd done a lot of work with Photoshop and Lightroom and, you know, manipulating stills images. And I just found my sensibilities with the computer um, and visually just just sort of worked well in that sort of post-production side of things rather than in production. Um, so after my uh, master's, I, I got a job as a runner at, at a company in Soho called Pepper and started training with the colorists that were there. And uh, at that time, when I joined in the sort of early to mid 2000s, uh, there was a still a lot of work on film, all the, all the, um, features were shot on film um, and TV was kind of a mixture of film and digital. Um, so my first experiences in post-production in a professional sense was handling roles of film, um, running them through the film cleaner. Um, and the role of an assistant was lacing up different roles of film and, you know, they, they'd work on those and then you'd swap the film over and that was all being transferred to tape. Uh, and it was only a year or two into my career that, um, you know, uh, you know, the company I was at invested in these um, new coder systems that were all digital. And then I started learning those and um, I sort of my career kind of progressed from there. Now, you, you mentioned Amelie. <laughs> so yeah. I, 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 there was sort of this era around that time because it was like run lola run came out amelie mm -hmm. and they all had very unique looks to them whenever i think of run lola run i think of like the red and her hair and all that stuff and when i think of amelie i think of the really saturated greens and and colors in there is there a particular film that you sort of gravitated to or inspired you when you were younger or was there a group of films from a visual perspective definitely blade runner yeah. uh just you know i remember the first time i saw that with my dad uh, and that would have been kind of uh, probably early 90s on a VHS tape, I think. And uh, uh, but just the visuals immediately really stood out. Use of colour. Um, I mean, those films, you know, Amelie that I mentioned, those films and that that era in the kind of late 90s and early 2000s, especially with the the birth of DI mm -hmm. as it became of of you know, taking a physical medium of film, digitizing it, and then manipulating it on all these ways that were far more extensive than when you were processing film in the lab and you were, you know, much more limited in the control you had. And, you know, in the early days of film, you know, the, those creative choices were made on set and with the choice of film print and so on. And then suddenly in a digital world, you can kind of, you know, do all of that you know, uh, you, you've got a lot more control over that in the in the DI. Um, so I think in the early 2000s, there were a lot of films really sort of pushing the boundaries of where you could take that. And now I think my job is to, uh, I, I, I'm finding on the projects that I work on now, some of them want those really bold, strong looks and others want to be far more naturalistic. And so I think, my job as a colorist is to sort of figure out what the boundaries are of any project you're doing and you know how far can we take this and often that's those first few hours of the first morning of the first day's grade is that time where you want to sort of mess about and okay and you know you sit down with the dp or the director and you kind of go right th this is where we can take it 
how far do we want to go or do we want to pull it back a little bit? Um, and it's always a bit of a, a balancing act on, you know, with every project that you do. You kind of mentioned something here. You know, originally we were doing color timing and you'd come in and run through and you'd go up a stop, down a stop, depending on the mm -hmm. colors. And now it's like a huge job in terms of like you're going, you know, shot by shot and like minute details are being explored. And so it's become a, a partnership with the cinematographer. So how do you like to work with them? How do you like to start a project with a, a new cinematographer? I like to get involved as early as possible in a project. I mean, uh, the sort of shows that we do, especially the, um, you know, the Amazon, Netflix, Disney type shows where, the, you know, the the production company will come to us at, or, or to myself and say, look, can we get you set up with the cinematographer for a chat? Sometimes it's just a phone call. Um, sometimes they'll come in with some lens or um, camera tests that they've done and we'll sit down and start discussing the script. Um, and we'll start just throwing out some ideas before they've been out on the shoot of just where they're thinking of taking the show. And then, you know, maybe we build a LUT or we start looking at some references that they might be using and we sort of figure out, um, you know, how much are they going to try and get in camera and how much are we going to do further down the line? For example, you know, do they want to use diffusion in front of the lens in camera or do we do that digitally because we've got more control? Uh, if they're going for a very strong look, are they using filters or do they shoot? slightly flatter and then we kind of do more of that in the grade so um we try and have those discussions as early as we can before the shoot so that we're all kind of on the same page and then you know during the process of the shoot um we'll be in discussion you know maybe there's a particular scene that they've had some issues with on set for whatever reason maybe the weather wasn't you know behaving because it, you know it was pouring with rain on a summer's day and they lost the light quickly. Um, maybe they'll send us some test shots so that we can kind of run some tests or, you know, if there's something more extreme, like, um, you know, like a day for night scene, um, for example, like one of the black mirrors I've just done, uh, we graded a whole scene probably two months before we actually did the final grade. Uh, you know, they shot before Christmas and there was a, you know, there's a particular transition of time from late afternoon into evening into night. You know, they were shooting with some GoPros uh, as well as the main camera and they just had to shoot some of it during the day. And then, you know, we we sort of brought that those scenes in a kind of early form of the edit just to see what we could do in the grade and, you know, check if there was any work that needed to go to visual effects. Um, and then any grading work we did, we could hand over to the visual effects team so they could kind of see, okay, this is how dark we're going to make it. And then, you know, if it's heading, adding headlights on the front of a motorbike or uh, onto the sides of buildings or something, it's all kind of a trying to coordinate those different teams yeah. together. I think my, our role as a colorist is you know, you've got all these different elements that are sort of coming together in their final form. We, we're kind of the last, along with the sound mix, we're kind of the last step in the process where, you know, visual effects are coming in, maybe little changes to the edit, the final sounds coming in, and we're trying to sort of bring all those 
elements together and sort of tie it all together with the with the vision of the director or the dp or the showrunner you just made me think about because i started in sound Mm -hmm. and i remember one of the most frustrating things at the post house would be like they would spend all their money as they got closer to you you (laughs) trying to improve things and they'd be like oh it's gonna be a really tight budget so does that happen to you guys Mm -hmm. like Everyone's just blowing through their cash, trying to fix it in post and through VFX or. Yeah. And I think you're always trying to figure out how you can help in that respect. Mm. I mean, uh, personally, you know, most of my work now is either um, uh, long form drama or features. But, you know, over the years, I've done a lot of faster turnaround documentary work, for example, and you learn just to be really fast for one thing, you know, um, I've done lots of shows in the past where you get one day to do, you know, 1500 shots. Uh, and at the end of the day, you do a nine hour day and then you review it with the client. And then that's kind of it. So you, you, you know, then you kind of go, okay, I need to do 150 shots an hour for the next, (laughs) you know, and you just go, go as fast as you can. Um, but that's really helpful because you learn how to just kind of, um, not be too precious with mm-hmm. with you know shot to shot it's more you know you've got to really focus on how do i make this all feel consistent and then yes you know a lot of the shows we're working on where there may be a huge number of visual effects you know the rig that you mentioned that was mm-hmm. i think about three and a half thousand visual effects shots yeah. but then there's always extra bits there's always you know um a boom that somebody's missed or uh uh if it's a a period thing you know there's one of the black mirrors that i just did that's set in the um late 60s and you know there's always little modern day air conditioning units or yeah. or something in the background and you know if it's a locked off shot or something quite straightforward where you can just go in the baseline and just go okay you know i'm good rather than you going off to visual effects and then spending you know a bunch more money to get that simple paint out done if we can do something in the grade just to fix that quickly, then we'll mm-hmm. we'll do that if we can. So you you're always trying to find ways to just sort of help out in that respect. Now you've mentioned Black Mirror a few times, and mm-hmm. one of my questions for you was going to be, you know, like usually when you're doing a show, there's a consistency across episodes in the sense of mm. this is the look of the show, and we're going through season one, and you can sort of prep yourself. But in Black Mirror, every episode's different because mm. every sort of whatever wherever we're going with these characters it's going to be different so how do you prepare for that is there some sort of elements that are kept from episode to episode or is it every single one's fresh you have to start from scratch essentially it's starting from scratch each time we we always look every series we've done we've treated every episode like a little mini feature Mm -hmm. um right through from the kind of the whole color workflow um you know, the amount of visual effects work, um, you know, the team, you know, you need a, you need a big team of people in the post-production company to, to help out, you know, whether it's the, the assistants, the, the visual effects editors, the producers, all kind of coordinating everything. Um, the one consistency with Black Mirror is Charlie Brooker as the, essentially the showrunner. Yeah. Um, and so you have different directors and DPs each time. I mean, the, there's a handful of directors and DPs who've done multiple episodes over the seasons, but Charlie is really the, the ultimate uh, guiding voice. Mm-hmm. So 
the, the kind of early stages of each episode is really just me and the DP or the director just having a chat going kind of what's the script and you know each time you get a script for that show it's a, always a I mean it's always a big surprise just what the subject matter is going to be mm-hmm. you know this series just gone has moved away a little bit from the kind of classic Black Mirror sort of subject matters around you know technology and that kind of dystopian near future kind of idea and there's more kind of horror ideas and um you know uh more sort of set in the past as well mm-hmm. so each each episode you really just sit down with the, the dp and co you kind of what what how are you looking to approach this um and then we just try and go from there and for the most part because all those discussions happen early on Charlie's usually pretty on board with where the direction is going. And we'll try and set some looks early in the process so that what they're seeing in the edit is yeah. somewhere in the direct, whether it's a LUT or something to, to kind of guide the edit in the direction of where the grade is ultimately going. And, you know, that does change sometimes, but, um, you know, he, he's the kind of, you know, we'll we'll do all the grading work, and then he'll come in and review it. And you know, he he sometimes you'll run an episode, and he's like, "Yeah, great, that's that's fine." And then other times there'll be it's usually like key scenes that he's got a very particular sense on. I mean, actually, there was one episode this season just gone where there was one scene in the Lock Henry episode that was out of everything that may or may not have been a challenge that you might try and predict. There was one scene which is like a, it's like a fake trailer for a um, a true crime documentary, yeah. and that sort of three minute section was probably one of the most challenging elements of the whole series, and it's a really kind of deliberately kind of lo-fi. Um, creatively, it looks you know it's all kind of like garbled images and uh, fuzzy text, and Matt Curtis has designed all these. Um, text elements to lay over, uh, graphics to lay over the top. And that, he because he had such a specific idea of how he wanted to, to look. Yeah. And it wasn't about, you know, they'd shot all these drone shots of the Scottish Highlands that are kind of beautiful, kind of 4K, super sharp images. But actually what he wanted was something much more lo-fi and kind of degraded. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, he preferred the look of the, you know, the compressed quick times to the, to the high res. And it's like, the, you had to kind of really rethink your normal, you know, normally you want to yeah. be working with absolutely the best source images you can. And in this case, you had to kind of rethink that a little bit. So did you guys end up using the compressed quick times in there? To it, it, it? For, for a few bits. Cause it was, it was like, cause you know, we, we'd sent him some tests for him to review on his laptop and the early tests were using some, some of the older footage and he just liked the way that worked yeah. and you, you know you sometimes you can kind of overthink it and try and okay this is the proper way to do it but actually if that's creatively what you like then just do that <laughs> <laughs> well it reminds me of i remember talking to uh the editor of district nine and they got all the vfx shots when they go into the alien ship for the first time and they were too clean and perfect. Mm. And, you know, there was all these complaints about it's too clean, it's too clean. So the editors went to his assistant and they output to VHS and then output to VHS and yeah. output to VHS. Yeah. 
and then captured that and then the director was like that's perfect that's what i wanted <laughs> so that's what's in the in the final film you know i remember when we started season three of black mirror was the first one on netflix where it became a 4k show yeah. rather than hd and you know a lot of the discussion was about you know taking those 4k images and people are always looking at ways to sort of dirty the image up whether it's adding mm -hmm. film grain or or diffusing things you know on the the demon 79 episode we've just done um we, we you know we made the first few shots trying we were trying to look like kind of you know, old reels of film where, you know, when you go and watch a film in the cinema and the trailers would come on and they'd all be kind of wobbly and scratchy. We wanted that kind of yeah. feeling. So often we're trying to look for ways to dirty the images up. In the latest season, the episode that everyone seems to be talking about is Jonah's Awful. Mm -hmm. And so I was re-watching it today and I was wondering, because I was noticing that like each of the scenes are have very distinct look so i was wondering did you guys have a plan for an arc for the colors in that episode or was did you take it scene by scene or how did you approach that it's a good question because obviously what you find out at the end of that episode and, mm -hmm. you know just not wishing well i'm going to spoil it a little bit yeah. for people watching this but i assuming people have watched it uh what you find out towards the end of the episode is you're not in the kind of first rung of the ladder of these these kind of fictive uh i can't remember mm. what they call them fictive levels of the show and there's these different versions of jones and so it does become a a bit of a thinking process of well what does that mean in terms of the color for that level of the show mm. and you're also thinking about you know because whenever you're thinking about the tone of a show you're thinking what, what's the what's the general mood what you know what mindset are the characters in is there a way we can reflect that you know if it's a very dark scene and you know people are going through a lot of troubles then maybe you're more desaturated and darker you know and if it's a very happy scene maybe you're a little brighter more colorful but you know at a very simple level but in this joan as you meet her at the start she's going through a lot of it. she's going through a pretty rough time mm -hmm. partly of her own creation but she's not in a great place but also we're we're actually as we discover one level up from the kind of original joan so mm -hmm. charlie wanted it to have a slightly more saturated look than we may have treated it if we if it had just been kind of that one fictive level throughout so we ended up actually dialing in more color into you know so that when she's sat in her apartment with her fiance and they first sit down to watch the streambury show uh we wanted that to feel quite rich mm -hmm. and um so that when you look back on it actually she's in a slightly unreal world and it's slightly away from reality because actually you discover that she's in yeah. this kind of ai generated <laughs> um you know version of her life well, it's uh, it's not an important question, but what's your mm -hmm. go-to or your favorite Black Mirror episode that you had to work on? Because you've worked on a lot. That's a good question. I think of the most recent series, Demon Seventy Nine and Beyond the Sea were ones I particularly enjoyed because I like Demon was great just because because of the seventies setting, mm -hmm. and there was a lot to play around with in terms of 
different looks and referencing kind of old Italian horror films. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's there's a sequence where uh, Nida, the main character, she smashes this girl's head through this uh, glass counter. And the idea was, you, you know, she has these sort of fantasy sequences, but the first few shots, when it, when it happens, you, you don't necessarily know instantly that it's, you know, it could really be happening. And then you sort of build up the look into this, when it gets more and more unreal. And we were sort of looking at Suspiria and kind of Dario Argento movies where mm-hmm. they kind of really bold colours and, and you know, sort of talking to Stefan, uh, the DP, kind of going, well, what elements can we take from that and kind of start introducing them? So it's always fun working on shows like that uh, where there's, a, you know, elements you can really get your teeth into. I mean, the Bandersnatch interactive um, episode was uh, a, a massive challenge, but very satisfying <laughs> to work on. And and I'm not... I, I The funny thing about that is I, when I talk to people, I'm not sure it comes across just how hard it was to work on that and how different it was from a normal episode mm-hmm. being interactive. Just we had to, from all departments, from from them shooting it on set to the edit, um, to the post, every element had to be kind of rethought because the interactive side of it just made it a hundred times more complicated. Yeah. Um, so it was really hard work, but very satisfying when it all kind of yeah. got delivered. It was like in between video game and movie, basically, where you guys Yeah, found well, I, I remember uh, when we were working on season four, um, Charlie said to me, because, you know, he's really into his video games, and yeah. we were talking about adventure games. Yeah, I, I used to love the Monkey Island series of like a point-and-click adventures, mm-hmm. and we were sort of talking about that, and he said, well, I'm working on this, episode and he said do you want to see the script and then he pulled out this massive sort of bit of a1 paper and it had this just this sort of flow chart with yeah. all these scenes joined together with arrows and he was like well this is this is what i'm yeah. working on and you know the the netflix engineers had to build a whole new piece of software yeah. to make it work and charlie would change his mind about okay at the end of this scene what happens next and you kind of change the order of events and it would break the software and it would crash and uh you know it's just all these elements that you're just not used to on a normal show yeah but it was a lot of fun trying to figure it out it's crazy because like i've talked to people who've written scripts for video games and they use spreadsheets Mm -hmm. like so that they can communicate with the coder so it's like if we do this then we do that yeah so i'm sure he probably showed them the flow chart and they were like ah you just put it in a spreadsheet (laughs) i think it nearly broke everybody involved uh, oh, wow. but we got there i don't want to say it was worth it because you don't want to break people at work but yeah it was it was enjoyable one of the things that happened for me with when watching black mirrors i watched the first few seasons and then i basically took a break for a couple of years because it was so mm. depressing mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you're working on this day and night or day in and day out what do you do to decompress or get off the sort of heaviness of some of the episodes to be honest when you're working on the show because you see it in its from its earliest form and then it sort of gets it kind of builds up i'm not sure that it has you know I, that in some ways that strips away some of the uh you know the darker elements mm-hmm. that you you ultimately see it's sometimes it's only when you kind of watch the final we were um we 
we had a screening of the Beyond the Sea episode at the BFI a few weeks back. And sometimes it's only when you kind of see it with an audience in its final form and you whether you really get a sense of how it's working in that respect. But I, you know, outside of work, I try and, um, you know, most of my free time is spent hanging out with my kids, yeah. uh, you know, in the summer, working out in the garden, um, playing some guitar, that kind of thing. You know, and I, you know, I watch a lot of movies um, and I, I try and uh, I, I try and watch like quite a, a broad range of different films and TV shows because it's always kind of it's interesting to see what other people are doing on mm -hmm. shows. And also it's good to kind of go back and watch some movies from the seventies or something and just kind of, kind of refresh your brain about, yeah. you know, what, what films look like, you know, 40 years ago or something. So I have one last question for you. What would you say is your favorite guilty pleasure film or TV show to watch? Well, I was trying to think about this because I, I don't feel that guilty about any of the stuff I watch, even if it's, it, you know, I, I, I I watch a whole range of different things. I mean, the, the guiltiest pleasure I've probably been watching recently is uh, Quantum Leap, because okay, that's yeah. a show I used to watch with my dad when I was a kid, and I was allowed to stay up late to watch it, and uh, they've been re-showing it on one of the channels. So I've been kind of enjoying re-watching old episodes of that. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview you today. No problem. Thank you for having me. So that was my interview with Alex. I'd like to thank Alex for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Jason Banky, my producer, as well as Evan Winch for cutting this episode. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.